Exodus chapter 12. All right, 12, 21. We're looking at the Exodus tonight. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel, that's like a branch, and the two, oh, I'm sorry, well, that's actually like a, whatever, it's like the crossbar, I think. <laughs> I'm thinking of hyssop. Um, touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter into the houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, that's the promised land, you will keep this service. So annually you'll keep the Passover. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this Passover service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now go over to 14, verse 21. 14, 21. So they, they had Pharaoh kicked them out of the land. They're on the way, but Pharaoh, of course, is chasing after them. Once more, he decides, I want them back. They're at the Red Sea. You guys know the scene. The scene. 21 says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went in the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of cloud and fire, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the water being a wall on their left and on their right. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses.
So, Father, I pray that tonight you would um, show us that your power in the Exodus is the power of our salvation today. I I pray for those in our group who are sick right now. Heal them, comfort them. Um, I pray for the transportation back home, Lord, that you keep us all safe in the snow. And we also pray for Chris as he's getting his medical exam for the military. Father, if it's your will, you help him to pass. And um, all those who were unable to make it tonight, bless them in their own way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, here we are. Part 6 of history. Looking at the grand story of the Bible. And um, in summary of the first two parts of the history story, uh, in part 1, God is a king with his word, his sovereign word. He creates a kingdom. We call it creation. He gives it to us, man and woman, to rule and control it. And he tells us by putting us in the middle of his presence, which was a garden called Eden, he told them, okay, your role now is to cultivate this garden and let it grow, inch at a time if necessary. You're to cultivate it. And the word cultivate is where we get our word culture. So the parallel for us today is that we're to be culture makers everywhere that we go. And so we're therefore to expand God's presence. And he wanted it to go across the entire globe. But this mission that Adam and Eve were sent upon was hindered by the second act of the story. That was called the act of rebellion. Because Adam and Eve decided, you know what? We don't want to obey God anymore. We want to be God. We're not the part of the creation. We want to be the creators. And so Satan, called the serpent in Genesis, the serpent tempts them and basically says, look, if you follow me, you can have your own rule. You can make the shots. You can make the calls. So they decided that that was a good plan. We're going to become our own. Remember the word we used? Autonomous means self-ruled, self-governed. Our own self-governed people, autonomy. And we are going on our own way. Well, God said if that's the way it is, then he exiled them from the garden. The garden is no longer here. It's gone. And man has ever since been in that state of exile, that state of separation, cut off. And that's what Christianity teaches is the problem with the world today. We're made to be with God and to be expanding his glory through the end of the world. But we've been cut off from that mission because of our autonomous self-will. And that is what we're trying. um, Act 3 began by saying God's going to restore us back to what we're meant to be. So we're in now that process where God's trying to bring us back. So, we saw that last time with Abraham. God started the restoration process. He's trying to bring us back to Eden. And he initiates this restoration. God looks down on pitiful man who's against him. And he has pity and says, I want to restore you to myself. I need you guys back. I want your fellowship. I want you to be my presence. So, he initiates this restoring us to his presence through a man called Abraham. And through Abraham, he says, I promise to bless this cursed world through the nation you're going to father. And that nation is going to bear this restoration promise. Now, we know that, that the sense of that promise is Jesus, who came from Abraham. And Jesus built a church, which we we're part of. And the church is part of this restoration process. So we're actually right now in the act of fulfilling God's promise to Abraham to bless this cursed world. That's your guys' role today in God's story. You're to be blessings where there's cursings everywhere. So, in school, 
You guys are restoration makers. You're supposed to be forming cultures of God's presence. We're supposed to be becoming God's blessing to this cursed world. Um, when you go to your careers, the same way. It's not just a job. You're, you're, you're taking up Adam and Eve's mission that they failed to do. Making culture, expanding God's presence around the globe. But now tonight, we see that this restoration continues through Moses. All right? It started with Abraham. I promise to bless the world, so you're going to develop into a nation. What do we see? That promise is being fulfilled. Because when you open up Exodus, you see that there were 70 people from Abraham went into Egypt, and those 70 people turned into thousands, and those thousands turned into hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands turned into what scholars estimate to be about 2 million people. And they grew and multiplied so much so that Pharaoh got panicked, and he said, these people are going to outnumber our people. These people are going to start to shape the Egyptian culture into God's culture, and we don't want that. So let's oppress these people of God. Let's, let's manipulate them. Let's put them in bondage. Let's enslave them. So they enslave them. And so what we see is that restoration can't happen without redemption. Or release is what redemption essentially means. So God promised Abraham, I'm going to restore the world. I'm going to bless the cursed world through you. But when we get to Exodus, we see that first what has to happen is that God's people need to be released from their bondage before God can begin to restore the world. So, in other words, we were in the garden with God. We fell into our autonomous self-rule. And before we can be restored to that, we have to be released from this rule of self. It's not like, it's just like, okay, cool. There's, There's this bondage. Your autonomous will to rule self and to be independent from God is a stranglehold. It's what the New Testament calls it your flesh. And it's just holding you down. And there has to be this release. There has to be this redemption, this deliverance from that, and then you're restored. So that's what we see in the Exodus. Restoration can't happen until we're released from the fall. And in Israel's case, they're in the middle of exile, away from the garden, and now they're oppressed under Egypt's rule. So God's going to do this in a couple ways. We see the problem. They're now enslaved. Pharaoh's being a bully. He's going to call a man named Moses. Moses is going to do all these mighty miracles and powers called plagues upon the Egyptians. We're going to find out the pathetic pretended power of Pharaoh and see that he's really a nobody. And then God is going to bring the final plague and it's going to break Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to let him go. Then he's going to regret it, going to come back after him. And they're going to be trapped at the Red Sea. God's going to say, watch my power, part the Red Sea. They're going to go through, close the waters on the Egyptians. They're gone. And they go off and the Israelites go off into a new life headed for the promised land, which is going to be the the restoration, at least in God's plan. So that's that's where the story of the Exodus is going. So God is going to initiate restoration by delivering Israel from oppressive exile. That's that's what we're going to be looking at: the oppressive exile and their release from that. Um, why does Israel need releasing? Why do they need deliverance? Answer. They're in oppressive exile. And namely, this is Egypt. This is slavery. Um, So, Exodus. That's actually a Greek phrase. It comes from two Greek words. Ek, which means out. 
and hadas, which means road or way. So exodus literally just means the way out. It's a deliverance. So that's when we say the exodus, we mean it is the way out, the path, the deliverance of God for his people. So he's going to, before he can take them back to Eden, he has to release them, exodus them from Egypt, from their exile. Now, what, is, what do I mean by exile? What, what does that mean? Two things. First, separation. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. In the garden, this integrated uh, relationship, they're at peace and pleasure in God's presence, but their sin separated them from that. They were exiled, and so now we live in this wilderness longing to get back to the Eden that we were made to be in. So they're in, exodus, or they're in exile in Egypt, desperate to get back, but now they're just, they're not there. And it also means oppression, secondly. So while we're, not, we're, we're first of all separated from the presence of God that we were meant to be in, but in this separation we're oppressed. We thought that we're going to become our own rulers, but really what happened is we enslaved ourselves with our own rule. The serpent is oppressing Israel and Egypt. So it's not just that they're separated, they're oppressed in their separation. It's not a good deal. Do you guys remember right after the fall in Genesis 3.15, God promised this. He said, as a result of the fall, part of the curse of this world is that there's now going to be two characters in God's story. The first is going to be what is called the seed of the serpent. That essentially means these are the children and the family of that serpent being who introduced autonomy to Adam and Eve. These are the ones that say, we want to rule our life. We don't submit to God's story. We create our own story. They're the rulers. They're the kings. Then there's a second family. It's called the seed of the woman. And that was coming from Eve. God saves Eve there, converts her heart, and her family becomes the the righteous ones. The ones who decide, we want God's story to rule our lives. We want him to be the author. We want to serve him. We want to do his mission. So those two camps develop. And when you get to Exodus, guess where the seed of the serpent is? The Egyptians. And Pharaoh is literally a type of the serpent ruling over them. You know that the little crown he wore and the little image on the forehead? You know what that looked like? It had the little serpent coming off of the forehead. So, like, literally, Pharaoh is the seed of the serpent and his little minions, his nation. And what is Israel? See, they're the woman. They're the righteous, right? So here, in a fulfillment of God's promise, this is what the curse is going to be. Seed of the serpents oppressing Israel. Holding them in slavery and in bondage. And if that isn't bad enough, Pharaoh decides, all right, time to create genocide. So he talked to the midwives. Those are people who deliver babies in your home. And um, said, all right, anytime a Hebrew woman's giving birth, I want you to kill it. Now, in the days, it would, you, would be, you wouldn't really know what was going on. Like the women, they actually um, they didn't have hospital beds. You would squat on bricks. So they put, set bricks up so that you had enough clearance um, for drop-off for your child to just like slam it to the ground. They raised you a little bit so there's some clearance. And so you just squatted. You couldn't really see what's going on. And the midwife would catch the baby and do all the like, thing to give it life and help it live. Well... Pharaoh basically said, when the baby comes out and you catch it, just kind of wring its neck and say, oh, it's a stillbirth, I'm sorry. 
So he wanted every Israelite's baby to basically die at birth. Well, the midwives refused. They said, no way. So Pharaoh went to plan B. He said, fine, it's now a law. If anyone finds an Israelite baby, throw him into the Nile. And so that's what they started to do. So, yes, oppression. Why does Israel need deliverance? They're in exile from Eden, and the oppression's getting bad. So they're going to be delivered. How does this happen? God initiates this deliverance. He's going to do it through three ways. Um, First, he's going to introduce a name. Then he's going to introduce blood. Then he's going to introduce water. A name, blood, and water. That's his method. Very interesting method, but it's his way. Um, So, in this oppression, listen to Israel. It's Exodus 2, verse 23. It says, During these many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So they cry out, we are in exile, we're separated from you, we're in oppression under the serpent's rule, help us, help us, and God hears. So God answers first by giving a revelation of his own name. You guys know, Moses was wandering out in the wilderness. He sees this bush on fire, but the bush isn't like burnt. It's, it's on fire, but it's not diminishing as fire does to wood and stuff. It kind of just disappears, turns into ash. But the bush is still perfectly healthy. If it had berries on it, it has berries on it. It's still green, but fire is just burning off this thing. Moses goes, whoa, I have to check this thing out. I've never seen this before. So then God calls out to him from the bush. It's God himself right there in the bush. And he says, I'm going to send you to deliver Israel from their exile. <laughs> Moses, you're going to be the one to bring them back to Eden. You're, you're going to be my vessel of restoration. Moses like, I, 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 I have a stuttering problem. <laughs> I can't do this. I have no confidence. Who are you anyways? Who am I to say sent me? And this is where God reveals himself. He reveals his name. And he tells Moses in 3 verse 14, Tell the people, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. Now, when you guys see the word Lord in your Bibles, in the Old Testament, have you ever noticed how sometimes Lord is in all capital letters? That is this name here. I am who I am. That's what Lord means. The Hebrew word is the word Yahweh. And so this is where we get our name Yahweh. That's God's self-name, Yahweh. And it's translated in those capital letters, Lord. So this is where it comes from. And what it means is, I am who I am. I'm the self-existing one. I'm all-sufficient. All power comes from me. I need nobody's help. That's basically what that means. But I am who I am could be translated, we're not, like the word could either be the present tense or the future tense. So it could be, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Or you could just flip them around a little bit and say, I will be who I am. Which to me, in this context, is what God wants Israel to know. I will be who I am right now. So that as you follow me, 
The God that you're going to see in the Exodus with the powerful plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, this great deliverance, in the future, I will be the same God. You don't have to worry about it. So, in short, what God wants them to do is to understand that from this day on, I'm not changing. I mean, he never did, but from the revelation on, I'm not going to change. Your history, Israel, is in my control. You can trust me as the author of your story. Because I'm not just going to just give up on you. I'm not just going to say, whatever, and change the story. Just get rid of you guys. It's going to work out very very well. So that's something that we can learn from God's name is that as we allow our story to become his story, we can trust him because he is going to be forever the same God today. The God who saved you is the God who's going to continue to lead you. He will be who he is. And so that's one way that he begins the deliverance process. He lets them know who they're dealing with. You can trust me. Follow me. I will bring you to your restoration. Second, blood. The price of deliverance. So in chapter 12, now we're getting to our actual text, okay? In chapter 12, we see the Passover. We read about it. Essentially what happens is Moses goes into Israel. uh, (laughs) Moses goes into Egypt. And Pharaoh basically says, you're not taking my people from me. Mm-mm, they're working for me. I'm sure he wasn't quite that black, but he, he tells him no way. And so, all right, bad moment, embarrassing. He, um, so but what basically happens is, remember, Pharaoh is the seed of the serpent. He's the one that says man is empowered by himself to do what he wants. But Moses is coming as the seed of the woman and saying, no, man needs to depend upon God for his power. So now what you have here is you have a clash of two different worldviews. And we're going to see this power contest between Pharaoh and Moses. Well, we're not actually going to see it. I'm just going to summarize it. And these are what we call the ten plagues. God manifests his power over Egypt through Moses. And so nine of them happen. And in um, what, what I think what, what God wants them to see in this, in the ten plagues, is basically he wants to expose Pharaoh's pretended power. All right. If you're in oppression, you're in exile from God's presence in Eden, and you're in Egypt, if this was the greatest culture of the day, you're thinking, wow, the way of autonomous rule that man just gets to do what he wants, he's his own God, looks like a pretty good way to live. This must be the Garden of Eden. So Israel could be tempted to just say, let's just mesh in with this culture. But God wants to show Israel, no, Egypt is not Eden. I have a better place for you. So watch me work. And he exposes that Pharaoh's power is pathetic and pretended. So part of what the plagues do, you guys, I'm sure you've seen the movies, you've read it, you've grown up on this maybe. Um, All like the locusts come, the darkness comes, the frogs come, the Nile turns into blood. All these things that deal with nature, you've noticed that maybe. All the plagues deal with nature. And what happens is God is basically using his home field advantage against the Egyptians. 
our king, who's the creator. Remember, he, he subdued chaos in Genesis 1 by his word. And creation sprouted out of death. Life came. Light came where there's darkness. Chaos turned into order in creation. So his kingdom came. This is his control. His words manipulate and do, they do what he says. And he, he's sovereign. And so he comes and he starts to play with that game with Pharaoh. Now the trip is, is that the Egyptians recognize that God is the one who controls creation. But they identified Pharaoh as their God. He was the representation of God to the nation. So as long as everything, as long as Pharaoh's in control, creation would be fine. He's the keeper of order. But when Moses comes in the name of Yahweh, and creation begins to get disturbed a little bit. Locusts come when they shouldn't. Water's turning into blood uncontrollably. Boils are breaking out on people. It, it, Pharaoh has absolutely no power over this. And Yahweh's beginning to undermine Egypt's worldview and thinking, wait a minute, maybe this isn't the paradise we're longing for. Maybe this is pretend and it's pathetic. And so the sovereign God of creation begins to dismantle creation right in front of the Egyptians. And then at the very end, the tenth plague is the climax of this whole thing. It gets worse and worse and worse. And scholars think that each of these plagues are aiming at one of the Egyptian deities that are supposed to control creation. So Egypt's just thinking, our pantheon sucks. Sorry, Mike. (laughs) Our Our pantheon stinks. It's horrible. Well... That's the point. So the climax comes in Passover. Pharaoh is just distraught with the state of his nation. I don't control creation. I guess I'm nobody. And the angel of death passes over that night. And everybody's firstborn son dies, including Pharaoh's. In 12.12, God says this. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And catch this. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. Why does he say that? Because in Egypt culture... When you had your first, of course, you guys know firstborn son is a big deal in ancient times. They got all the inheritance. They're like the next leader of the family. When they had a firstborn son, they would go to the temple of their favorite god, the god they constantly prayed to for protection, and they offer their firstborn son to the god's protection. Keep our family name alive with this son. And so they would rest assured that the god of the frogs or the god of whatever is watching over their son. But on this night, in one night, every stinking God in Egypt is proved powerless and pathetic between Yahweh and he strikes down all their firstborn. And now the Egyptians are beside themselves and they don't even know what is going on. They have no idea what their whole religion is all about. And so that happened. But Israel's firstborn sons didn't die. Because God said, if you take a lamb, an innocent, perfect lamb without any blemishes, you kill it, you put its blood on the doorposts, and you eat of that lamb, and eat unleavened bread with it, and bitter herbs, you just have this feast. My angel isn't going to enter into your house and kill him. He's going to see the blood and say, oh, the firstborn has already died. The lamb died in his place. And he's going to pass over. And so Egypt was saved. They were delivered from death that night by the price of blood. 
So God's name comes. I will be who I am. Now I'm going to save you from this death plague through innocent blood. And now Pharaoh's broken. He's beside himself. He doesn't know what to believe anymore. He's not who he thought he was. Their Eden has crumbled. They realize it was all fake and false. And he says, get out of here. Just leave. And they leave. And they're at the Red Sea. And they're camping out, ready to cross it or looking for a fort or something. And they're in between two mountains. Red Sea, two mountains. Not looking good. And then Egypt comes back and says, because that's the serpent. He's persistent for you guys. He does not want you guys to leave his rule. You guys walk with God, he's right on your heels, trying to bruise your heel. And so there they are, boxed in. And Egypt comes back. And they're completely surrounded now. And what happens? Well, God finishes the deliverance process. His name, blood, and now water. So... Look at um, 14, verse 13. They're panicked. They don't know what to do. They cried to Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Ooh. The Lord will fight for you. You have only... To be silent. So, this is what Moses does in verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by what? A strong east wind. Why a strong east wind? Do you guys remember when we looked at the flood... What, what, what made the waters recede after the flood? It was in chapter 8 verse 1. It said the Lord sent a wind over the waters. And the waters began to recede. Wind and spirit are the same Hebrew word. So they're just translated whichever seems to be the best context. Wind and spirit, same. What was blowing over the water in Genesis 1-2? Yeah, it says there's chaotic waters and the Spirit of God hovered or blew over the waters. And what happened? The waters receded, creation came forth. So, you have here the exodus over these waters of potential, soon to be death. <laughs> the Spirit of God, God sent his, his east wind or his east spirit blowing over the waters and they began to part. It's, it's almost like a recreation is happening. The same method of creation is going on. So God's doing this. He's standing up. He's saying, I, your creative God, the one who created Eden, I am going to deliver you from the oppressive exile in Egypt to come to my new Eden, which I'm creating for you in the promised land. So here I am. New creation. Let's go. Wind is blowing. Spirit's moving. The waters are parting. Israel goes through. They're safe and sound. And the... Forces of chaos, the Egyptians, the serpent, go into the water and God just finishes them off. Egypt was nipping at the heels of Israel, bruising them. But now God turns around and crushes the head of the serpent. Which is what Jesus did on the cross. So, they're delivered. They're free on the other side of the Red Sea. That's how God initiated this restoration. They're now, you know, through the rest of the Bible, they're, they're in the wilderness and they're on their way to the promised land to be restored in what was supposed to become an Eden. 
Restored with God's presence is going to be his temple place. And they're to expand their new promised land to the ends of the world. But you guys know that they fail in that. And we'll see all those details later. But that's where they're going. They're going towards potential restoration. And for us today, this, this Exodus story is our story. We, humanity, is still in exile. We're still in oppressive exile. We don't call this exile Egypt anymore. We call this exile sin. And it oppresses everybody. Sin separates us from the peaceful, pleasurable presence of God. We're not there in Eden because of sin. Sin oppresses us. It enslaves us. It's the, it's the serpent's rule. It's manipulating us to do what we don't want to do. To become just these brains made of, flood, I don't know, fleshly desires and passions. We're, we're just coming victims of culture. We need a Moses to lead an exodus out of this exile. That we can be restored with God in Eden. That's where we are. That's what we need. So how does this happen? Well, Deuteronomy 18.15. I would, I would note this in your minds, in your notes, uh, or go there. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, this is Moses talking, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses. From among you, from your brothers, and him you shall listen. So Moses, to the children of Israel, right before they go in the promised land, God's going to raise up another prophet just like me, and he's going to lead you, and you're going to listen to him. Who is that prophet? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus is the, pro- is the Moses-like prophet who is promised. Was he Really? Yeah, it's so evident and so cool when you look at the New Testament. Jesus was literally Moses. I mean, I'm not saying he was Moses, like come back or something. He, he played the role of Moses. We're in that oppressive exile of sin. And Jesus comes and says, Exodus time, I'm here to deliver you, to bring you to restoration with me. How does he do this? What did Moses do? Moses came on the scene and he, he helped deliver the people through blood. The Passover is coming. You need blood on the doorposts to save yourselves. Blood from a lamb as a, sac- as a substitute for you. So what did Jesus do? Exactly that. He's our lamb who bled in our place. For example, John 1 verse 29. Jesus is our lamb. John says, Behold, the lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. Lamb? Why lamb? Because the Passover lamb delivered Israel. Jesus gave his blood. Ephesians 1.7 In Jesus we have redemption or deliverance, release, through his blood. 1 Peter 1.19 combines both. You were ransomed, released, um, bought back. With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. And then Jesus was also our substitute, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, in your place, as your substitute. Just like the lamb. 
And to prove this further, Jesus died on what day? Passover. When everyone's celebrating deliverance from Egypt, Jesus says, I'm Moses, I'm delivering you from a different oppression, from your sin. And he died as our lamb on the cross so that death would overlook us and we can be restored to life in Eden with him. And, and even more, we talked this downstairs with communion. He instituted communion as the new Passover supper. So yeah, Jesus is our new Moses leading a new exodus for us, a new deliverance. Um, Moses also took him through the Red Sea, right? Guess what Jesus took us through? The Red Sea. It's called his resurrection, and we partake in the resurrection with him. Um, I'll show you this in a couple ways. First of all, the Old Testament looks back on the crossing of the Red Sea as the, other than creation, as the biggest display of God's saving power. And it kind of parallels creation because I showed you how it was kind of a creative act with the wind blowing and all. Um, That was God's power. In the New Testament, what does it refer, refer to God's power as? The resurrection. For example, Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power through his resurrection. The resurrection was the power that proved he was God. In Ephesians 1.19, Paul prayed that we would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The immeasurable work of God's power is what he did when he rose Jesus from the dead, in other words. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, I count everything as rubbish that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The resurrection was the power of God. When the Pharisees came to Jesus, they said, give us a proof, a sign that you are indeed the Son of God. We want power evidence. And Jesus said, this is the power, full evidence I'm going to give you. I'm going to die and be back in three days. So, in the same way that the the Red Sea parting was the power of God's deliverance, the resurrection for us is the power of God's deliverance. We know that our sins are paid for because he rose from the dead. There's legit proof. The Red Sea and the resurrection. Now, there's, there's parallels in the story. Jesus died before he rose from the dead. Israel died too. You see that in um, like 14 verse 9. Um, they, they basically are they're whining. It's actually um, in verse what 11. They said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt you took us out here to die? They're complaining. They go on and on saying basically we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. They basically saw themselves as dead. Then they crossed into the water. Remember, water is a symbol, like massive seawater is a symbol of evil in the Bible. And they're entering into the unknown, the abyss, the depths of the water that have been parted. It's like the dark, evil, chaotic surge, and they're going into it. They're literally going into like a, a symbolic death. But Jesus rose from death. Did Israel rise from death, or did they die in the water? No, they, they came out on the other side. They went into death and came out of death, alive into new life. Like Jesus did. Jesus rose in the morning. Matthew 28, 1. And um, Mark, Luke, and John also refer specifically to the morning when the resurrection happened. Look at 14, verse 27. So when Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. So they both rose in the morning. 
And the victory is the same too. Jesus triumphed over his enemy. And our sin is seen no more. God triumphed over Israel's enemies. And they were seen no more. For example, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that God used. They would see them no more. They're dead on the seashore. Your sins are gone. Buried with Christ. And he rose. And they're conquered. Um, Jesus triumphed over Satan. It says in Colossians 2.15 that when he died on the cross, he triumphed over Satan. Disarmed him of any power against you. Triumphing. Egypt has no more power over Israel. They've been defeated. When Jesus rose, he crushed the head of the serpent. When Israel saw Egypt dead on the seashore, that head of that serpent was definitely crushed and gone. So Jesus comes on the scene as our Moses, leading a new exodus. So this is what we must do. You must trust Jesus as your Moses, as your deliverer, as the one who's going to take you out of exile. The separation from God's pleasant, perfect, pleasurable, peaceful presence doesn't have to continue. You can be restored to that because he's the Moses. Let's come out of the ex- Let's come out of the exile. I'm leading you now to restoration to Eden. Follow me, and, and we can trust him because, like Moses, was used of God to deliver Israel through blood and through water. Jesus did the same thing through His blood and through the resurrection. And ironically, if you guys want to study this further, I haven't yet. John talked about blood and water coming out of the side of Jesus on the cross. I just, I just wonder if there's a connection. Jesus has delivered us through his work of crucifixion, Passover, resurrection, crossing the Red Sea. And your sin no more. So this is what we need to do. One, cry out to God like Israel did. They felt the oppression of exile. So what did they do? Save us! And he heard. Two, accept the sacrifice that Jesus gave you. What if Israel said, there's going to be no plague of death tonight. We don't need stupid blood on some stupid doorpost. Just like that's going to work. What would have happened? Dead. But it was the act of faith and trust that this sacrifice is sufficient that caused them to be delivered. You too trust that Jesus' death, his blood is enough. And then third, trust that his creative power will make you a new creation. That you will forever be out of your exile and restored with him into the new creation, the new Eden. Israel came out as a new creation on the other side of the Red Sea. Jesus rose so that you can too rise and become a new creation. Restoration is yours. God wants you to be back with his perfect, peaceful, pleasurable presence. He wants to bring you into Eden. He wants to create an Eden inside of your wilderness heart. Bring fruit, bring life. Bring pleasure and peace. But we got to follow our, our Moses out of exile into the new exodus and trust that he's restoring. He's making all things new. Let's pray. Father, we ask for, we ask for your guidance and for our faith in your leading. You will be who you are. We trust that. We give you the pen and say that you're worthy of being the author. So, take us and make us a part of your story. Restore, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.